0: Welcome to the Stills Now podcast for December 2023. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Stills Now. That's right, I have another website called stillsnow.com and we do a monthly newsletter and podcast that you can subscribe to either on your favorite podcast channel or go to stillsnow.com and sign up for the newsletter so you'll see when that comes out. It's got a lot of resources about Still's disease and auto-inflammatory conditions, including new regulatory decisions and, uh, and new articles that help to clarify the diagnosis and management of these very difficult disorders. In this podcast, brought to you by Room Now Live, January 27 twenty-eight in Dallas, Texas, you can register at roomnow.live. In this podcast, we're going to review some of the highlight abstracts that were presented just last month at the ACR annual meeting in San Diego held November 12th through the 16th. Great meeting, a lot of great content. We've done reviews for you on a lot of subjects, but here's a review on Still's disease and auto-inflammatory disease. So let's begin with, I think I have about eight or nine what what I thought were highlight presentations that you should be aware of first is actually a rehash from ULAR 2023 in Milan where abstract 0761 Bruno Fautrell and a number of co-workers presented the ULAR press recommendations for the diagnosis and management of systemic onset JIA and adult onset still disease. These are guidelines that are really instructive tell you a lot about the condition and the approach to the condition as coming to you from the world's experts on this. I think it's a really nice document, a really good guide to therapy. The highlights of this abstract were the following. Number one, they say emphatically that systemic JIA and adult-onset Stills disease are the same condition. And henceforth, they should be called Stills disease. Stills disease in a kid, Stills disease in an adult, it doesn't matter. It's all Stills disease. I think it's a very important point that the FDA and the other regulatory agencies have really signed on to. Second, that you should, I like to teach that you can consider the diagnosis of Still's disease by having a triad of typical fever, typical rash, and polyarthritis. I like their criteria better. They say a rapid diagnosis of Still's disease can be considered and strongly considered when you have the quotidian fever, one. Second, the typical JIA a rash that salmon pink evanescent comes and goes and thirdly high levels of inflammation i like that that means you know extreme elevations of sed rate and crp and extreme elevations of ferritin don't get too hung up on ferritin many of you do the sed rate and crp are enough to make this diagnosis but they're going to be very very high like higher than pmr high right um, and if you, yeah, if you got a ferritin of 20,000 and no other good cause, then congratulations. But that's going to be one out of, out of 20 uh, very sick patients with Stills disease. The other thing that they remind you of is that you should look for MAS in everyone. And that you should be aware of these, this lung disease that accompanies, uh, especially kids with systemic JIA and Stills disease. They say that first line therapy is no longer, you know, methotrexate and steroids and Boom go right to a cytokine inhibitor, either an IL-1 inhibitor or an IL-6 inhibitor, with or without steroids. First-line therapy. It works. Why not use it first? And lastly, they remind you that if you have a difficult patient, someone who you say is difficult to diagnose and or treat, and or someone who has MAS, macrophage activation syndrome, and or someone who has a lung disease associated with Still's disease, those people really do need to be referred to and managed by an expert Still's disease center. And, you know, you can ask around and find out where those are in your state, in your town, in your country. Second abstract I like actually sort of reinforces this point that adult and kid disease is the same. It's abstract 0758 um, and says there's no difference between the two, and that's based on a meta-analysis or sy- sy- systematic review of eight studies and nearly a thousand patients, and they say that you know when you look at this, there's really no difference in the pooled estimated prevalence of all the symptoms of the two systemic JIA and Still's disease, with the exception of sore pro sore throat, second myalgia, and third weight loss. These are um, more frequent in adults with Still's disease that's really important and something we've been teaching for a long time. Our next abstract worth noting is abstract number 2473, and it's a consensus algorithm on how to diagnose uh, systemic JIA patients who have this lung disease. It's rare. It does occur. We're starting to see Um, cohort studies that are better defining the syndrome, trying to get a a grip on what is the exact pathology and the driver of this. This was a multi-center expert panel that reviewed a lot, the literature first, and then cases, and then came up with this algorithm. One, you have to have systemic JIA. Two, those people need to be treated first line with either an IL-1 or an IL-6 inhibitor. But then you got to look for the red flag features. Any of these or all of these should be reason enough for you to refer to a pulmonologist and a stills expert center. Preferably a rheumatologist run stills expert center. This would include very young age of onset, less than 24 months. The hla doctor beta one fifteen allele, there's a few of them, but HLA-DR-beta-1.15 is the one you worry about. Trisomy 21, high disease activity, especially the presence of macrophage activation syndrome. A new atypical rash, eosinophilia, anaphylaxis, respiratory symptoms, the presence of pulmonary abnormalities on exam, or clubbing. Like half these patients have clubbing. They all have, you know, abnormal chest X-rays and chest CTs. They all have very abnormal bronchoalveolar lavage. So these are the features that one should look for. It is debatable whether or not HLA typing is needed or not here. There are probably more studies right now that say that it's not that predictive and it doesn't pan out. There are some people who believe it does. And there was a report from the University of Minnesota where they had a much higher rate of HLADR beta-115s, and so, okay, that's probably, you know, the beginning of a a cohort of evidence that we're going to have to weigh, but right now, I don't think you can say that that haplotype is a risk factor for certain. Eosinophilia seems to be a risk factor. Some people believe prior treatment with IL-1 or IL-6 inhibitors may be a risk factor for the development of this condition. Um, So, let's move on. I have more on uh, this lung, lung disease in, in, in a, few, a few more abstracts. Uh, abstract number four, 1932 is the abstract number, talks about the impact of initial ferritin levels on the, um, the disease and its complications. So they did a study of 185 patients with Still's disease. And they were typical. When you look at all their numbers and the the demographic profile, it looked typical. Median white blood cell count was 12,000. That's about right. Median CRP levels were about 16, right? The median ferritin levels were 6,700. Out of the 185, it looks like 44. So that looks like, uh, what, um, about 30% were admitted to the ICU, Um, If you are an ICU-admitted Stills patient, you are more likely to have higher initial ferritin levels greater than 6,000. Also, those who were initially admitted to the ICU with Stills disease were more likely to manifest MAS or HLH, DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulation, and pleural effusions, but not pericardial effusions. The point being that extreme elevation of ferritin should be A, a gigantic red flag for MAS or HLH but should also be a severity marker. Because, again, I've always said that, you know, you want acute phase rectin-stills disease, 95% will have extreme elevation or high, high set rates in CRPs. But only 50% are going to have an elevated ferritin. And that's elevated ferritin, like more than 1,000. But, like, you know, extreme elevation or hyperferritinemia more than, I think the number is 10,000, or extreme elevation, that's an even lower number. But... The fact that it's lower means it's a more select group and they're more likely to have more severe disease and end up in the ICU. I think that's an important teaching point. Next abstract, 0348. I actually talked to the authors of this abstract. I found it interesting because it kind of jives with what I've been uh, observing when I'm treating these patients. And that is the use of r- ruxolitinib, the other JAK inhibitors used to treat um, um, myelodysplasia and hematologic indications. Uh, It was used to treat uh, three cases with systemic JIA that were refractory to typical therapies. And by that, I mean steroids, immunosuppressives, other cytokine inhibitors. There were three patients between ages of 5 and 15, two females, one male. I mean, for instance, one patient had um, SJIA, recurrent MAS, fever, hypotension, Despite treatment with anakinra and tocilizumab and, uh, and then had A- A- MAS, ruxolotinib added to the, the regimen, it seemed to work. Um, I'm an advocate for the use of um, the JAK inhibitors. I've used mostly topocitinib, but I believe that they'll all work. Here's now evidence that ruxolotinib works in the treatment of um, either the MAS complications of uh, stills or really problematic stills. Uh, I really would like to see some studies of this rather than what we're seeing here and in other reports, which are just case reports, and sometimes that's the best you can do. Next abstract, 0358, Um, the clinical and baseline features and biomarker features of Uh, systemic JIA lung disease patients coming from the CARA registry. That's the Childhood Arthritis and Rheumatology Research Alliance, or CARA. They do a lot of important research in pediatric rheumatology. They identified and enrolled in their prospective registry 37 patients um, from 16 CARA sites um, in the United States. Uh, 46 had uh, proven Biopsy proven lung disease, definite lung disease, 36 uh, probable lung disease, 18 suspected SJIA lung disease. Um, The ones who had lung biopsy, all of them had uh, alveolar proteinosis um, and interstitial inflammation, 40% had fibrosis. But what we're seeing here with this lung disease, it's got a number of different presentations. And whether it occurs early, whether it occurs in young people or older, I mean, again, I think there needs to be more research on this. The interesting thing about this lung disease cohort, inside having serious lung disease and a high risk of of hospitalization and death, um, is that they have a much higher risk of developing MAS than patients without lung disease. In this study, 77% had one definite episode of macrophage activation syndrome. Um, and I think that that's worrisome, right? In, in in these cases, the MAS occurred prior to the lung disease in um, 70% uh, of the cases and coincided with the lung disease in 18%. Another study from Bracaglia et al., 095, talked about their cohort um, from European centers, 17 pediatric rheumatology centers, um, that And they compiled a list of 49 kids with SJIA lung disease. The median age of onset was seven years. Um, and uh, 27 of the 49 had a chronic persistent course, meaning more arthritis. But uh, 38 or 77% had active systemic JIA at the time of diagnosis. Um, um, about the other half of the patients had... Polycyclic or f- inflammatory episodes so twenty one out of the forty nine and so about forty percent of the patients so again um, the lung disease becoming active at the time of the diagnosis seventy seven percent that seems high to me um, but um, and and the rest there, there were no others that developed it after the onset and then eighty four percent developed mas and uh, what 's this the and then a few of them died. Um, again, the bronchoalveolar lavage was done in a subset of 22 patients, um, and and that, as I again told us about, alveolar proteinosis, um, vasculitis was found in one fibrosis and in, in a few others. Again, um, 47% of these people required ICU admission, and 18% died. So this lung disease is a serious deal, and that's why the, the recommendations the the ULAR Press recommendation, they've got to look for this and, be, and really have a high index of suspicion about this. Um, we had a few abstracts that um, that talked about, um, actually one abstract that talked about uh, predicting success with anakinra or IL-1 inhibition in 39 patients with SJIA. That's abstract um, number 036 by Nardini et al., and out of their 39 patients, about 25% flared um, when anakin was, was was withdrawn, and flared about eight months later. So, I like that number. I always use the number: uh, how long is this disease going to last? And I say eight months to eight years. How long before you know you're out of the woods? And I say about eight months. And I think that that kind of says that here. But the number is 26% of people who they withdrew the the anakinron for systemic JIA and 26% flared within eight months. What predicted the ones who didn't flare? Meaning you treated them for eight months, eight years, whatever you think, showed that they were in remission for a prolonged period, and then you decided to withdraw therapy. What were the features? Well, the ones who had shorter disease duration were less likely to flare. The ones who had early use of Anakinra, meaning being used within the first three months of disease, compared to those who had uh, Anakinra after three months of disease, they had an eightfold higher risk of flare than those who got it earlier. And also those who received higher doses of anakinra. Anakinra, you may need higher than usual doses. You could say the same for IL6 inhibition, because these are hot, 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 inflammatory patients, and usual doses may not be enough. I think that's an instructive abstract. That's abstract 036 from Nardini et al. And lastly, there were a few abstracts about how stills patients respond when they receive the COVID vaccination. One coming from the Reliance Registry. This is abstract 1842. um, And there is a large cohort of patients who receive uh, canakinumab for autoinflammatory and periodic syndromes. So not just stills disease. And they showed no significant risk of flare or disease worsening of their auto-inflammatory condition with the COVID vaccine. Second, abstract number 097 did the same thing looking at um, adults and kids um, immunized. I think it was over 100 patients um, um, who received the the COVID-19 immunizations and they only had, I think, one flare in in those that were uh, vaccinated. So again, you can vaccinate your patients with Stills disease using COVID as a test case here. uh, And I certainly would recommend those patients receive the vaccinations that they are due based on their age and based on when those vaccines are available. That's it for this episode of the Stills Now podcast. Um, Listen next month. Again, you can... I'm going to put this podcast on the Room Now channel to, for others to tune in, and, but to remind you that if you want to get future Stills Now podcasts, you've got to go to the StillsNow.com website or look for Stills Now podcasts and subscribe to that because we've got a few of them coming up monthly um, that we started last month, we're doing this month, we've got a few more coming in the months to come. Tune in for those. Take care.